chapter 7. I don't know if you know, but Billy Graham was 99 years old a few days ago. Yes, he's still with us. His daughter, Anne Graham Lotz, is also a very gifted speaker. And at Keswick, at the convention in 2000, she said this, Unconfessed sin on the part of Christians is responsible for the less than healthy state of the church. We have unspeakable sin in the church. I'm convinced that one of the things blocking what God is wanting to do in our world today is sin in the camp. We live in defeat. We live with a very low level of Christian experience. We have no power to get answers to prayer. No power to bring lost souls to Christ. And it is because we are harboring sin. So we're going to be thinking about sin in the camp and how it's dealt with, putting that positively, God's way of putting things right. And so we have defeat to speak about first, its causes, and then secondly, its cure. So what were the causes of this defeat the first time that they tried to take AI when they were severely trounced? And the first and most obvious cause is disobedience. We've already heard that God gave specific instructions that when Jericho was taken, for good reasons, all the people and animals would be destroyed and all of the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron were to be put into his treasury. That happened with one exception. Achan took for himself some of the things that should have been devoted to God. Look at chapter 7 and verse 21 when all this comes to light. This is Achan's, if you like to use the word, testimony. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. I saw, I coveted, I took. Do you see the progression there? We often can't avoid the first look at something that's forbidden. But it's a sin if we continue to look as Achan did because we may then well end up taking as he did. This is why Jesus said, Matthew 5.19, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. People have enormous trouble with that. What did Jesus mean? Surely he can't have been speaking literally. No. He's speaking, as he quite often does, in a highly dramatic way in order to get our attention. He is saying this. If your right eye causes you to sin... Act as if you had gouged it out. Because if you had gouged it out, you wouldn't be able to see. In other words, don't go on looking. So there's just a simple lesson about taking decisive action when there's the beginning of being led into sin. But it does raise the question, doesn't it? Why was Achan's sin so serious? Only one man in the whole army disobeyed. 
And quite simply, sin is serious because it spreads. Yeast in the Bible is a symbol for evil. Remember how they had to get rid of all the yeast uh, before they took the Passover when they came out of Egypt. And so Paul says, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? The church is an organism, a living organism, a body. And that means that there is no such thing as a personal or private sin. It affects the whole body. In just the same way that if a snake bites you with just two tiny little fang marks, the venom spreads through the whole body and poisons it. So it is with the body of Christ. Let's just take a quick sideways look for a moment. You needn't turn to it because there's a parallel story to that of Achan in the New Testament in Acts 5. This couple called Ananias and Sapphira who sold a piece of property, gave some of the money to the apostles for distribution to the poor but claimed that it was all the money. And their sin was not of keeping some of the money back for themselves. Peter said they were entitled to do that. Their sin was lying. Their sin was hypocrisy, pretending to be more generous, pretending to be uh, more spiritual than they were. And my point is that God punished them severely also. And as each one of them was exposed by a word of revelation from God to Peter, each one of them dropped down dead. Because it would have brought hypocrisy into the church to taint and spoil the church if their sin had gone unchecked. Again, we see what we were saying earlier. God is holy and he will not allow unholiness among his people because he knows how easily and quickly the contamination spreads. Interesting, isn't it? Concerning bitterness and on the well team, and I'm sure you've experienced this and observed this, we so often deal with unforgiveness, which becomes bitterness if it's allowed to root. Concerning bitterness, Hebrews 12 warns us that if a root of bitterness grows, it, quote, causes trouble and defiles many. So it's not just my personal bitterness, but it spreads its negative influence upon others. And in the same way, things like gossip and criticism have great power to undermine and disrupt and destroy relationships in the Christian fellowship. So the big cause of defeat is disobedience, but there are two or three other things quickly. First of all, presumption. It's clear from the way the Israelites acted that they thought that they had won the victory over Jericho and not God. They were really taking some of the credit for themselves. And I think there's a warning here for those of us who pray for people. When we see, as we quite often do, amazing and wonderful things happen in their lives. So easy to start taking the credit for ourselves. Well, I did rather well in that prayer appointment, didn't I? And we can start to think that it's our own doing. Here is a statement I once heard, which I'm pleased to say comes back to challenge me frequently. I don't mind giving God the glory if I can take the credit. 
That's a nasty one, isn't it? But uh, it just shows how subtly the enemy can get at us unless we're watching it. We must not start to think that it's our own doing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's presumption. And thirdly, self-confidence. We are told that Joshua, as a good commander, once again sent spies out before planning to take this next city of Ai. And they report back, well, it's a much smaller city, therefore a much smaller fighting force is all that's needed. We suggest about 300 men. Joshua, you stay behind with the other troops. You have a well-deserved rest. Uh, And in fact, chapter 7 and verse 3, do not weary all the people. Sounds positive, doesn't it? And caring. But their attitude seems to have been this. Well, after Jericho, taking this small city would be very easy and straightforward. We have to be aware of self-confidence. I know, and I've already said, that Jesus has won the decisive battle. That all authority is given not just to him, but to us as we're in him. But we need to remember, and I'll say it again, that we're coming against a powerful enemy, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And we must, on the one hand, we must not be fearful of the enemy, But on the other hand, we must not be too dismissive of him. We must be fully aware of his strength and his cunning and his desire to trip us down. And I think that verse from 1 Corinthians 10, again, needs to be a constant reminder. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. That's when we're in danger, when we're self-confident, well, this Christian life is not really too difficult, is it? Praying with people's really pretty straightforward. That's danger point. And lastly, prayerlessness. There is no mention in this passage that Joshua asked God to give him the strategy. And yet, God had so clearly spoken to him earlier to give him the strategy for Jericho. First of all, to cross the Jordan and then to take Jericho. And to reinforce this fact, the ark was there right at the front when they crossed the Jordan. The ark was there right at the front when they marched around Jericho. But there's no mention of the ark here when they go out to fight against Ai. It only is mentioned after they suffered defeat. Lesson to learn. Very easy to neglect prayer after a victory. For example, a victory in the prayer booth. That's the time when we're especially vulnerable. That's the time when Satan, who is enraged at the victory that's just been won, may well counter-attack. Here is an important principle in the Christian life. After the blessing, the battle. Elijah experienced that. That amazing victory over all the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And then he crumbled completely. And I understand the reasons for that, physical, emotional exhaustion and so on. 
goes into self-pity and suicidal thoughts. I, even I only am left. He faced that battle after the great victory. And of course, if we look at the baptism of Jesus, amazing blessing, and then he's led into the wilderness and has a fierce battle with the enemy for 40 days. So that's the negative side. Now let's look at the cure for defeat. How do we deal with sin among the people of God so that it no longer robs us of victory? And the first and obvious thing is that we confess. Ideally, that should be done by the person who acknowledges their sin and done voluntarily. Although that didn't happen here and it didn't happen with Ananias and Sapphira. They all had to be confronted. So, chapter 7 and uh, verse uh, 10. Sorry, verse... Just a minute... Um, Verse 6 says this, After the defeat, Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till the evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their head. And so they're sort of saying, Lord, something has gone wrong. We're terribly sorry. Show us what it is. Show us why we've suffered this defeat. And God tells him exactly what has happened. The devoted things have been taken. He doesn't tell him who has taken them, but he gives instructions that by lot they are to identify the tribe, the clan, the family, and then the individual who's done this. And perhaps in that process, God was giving Achan every opportunity to confess his sin before being unmasked. But when Achan is finally revealed and confronted with his sin, chapter 7 and verse 20, then he does confess. Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. I saw, I coveted, I took. And that emphasizes the vital need for confession if we're to receive forgiveness from the Lord. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which I think every Christian should know by heart. Instead of playing the blame game and trying to shift responsibility to someone else, instead of trying to excuse ourselves, we need to say, I have sinned. And just a couple of things here. To help us in that, we need to be specific and not sort of mumble, well, maybe, Lord, I didn't get it quite right or something. We need to be specific about our sin. In that long verse, Hosea chapter 14 and verse 2, it says this, take words with you. And the implication is that we need to spell out with specific words what it is that we've done wrong. I think the prodigal gives us a great lesson here because he worked out his speech to his father before he even went home. Father, I have sinned against heaven, against God, and before you. We need to be specific and we need to be sincere. Joel chapter 2 
Return to me, says God, with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. And Peter is a good example of that. After he denied Jesus, he went outside and wept bitterly. And it's good if there are times when we are moved to tears. <clears throat> I remember early on in my ministry, I was seeking God and I knew that he was dealing with me. And one day God met with me very suddenly and showed me all the ambition that there was in my heart. This is after I'd been about two and a bit years at my church. The desire to be a great preacher, the desire to have a big church and have a great pulpit ministry that people would crowd in to come and see and hear. And God showed me the terrible ambition and the terrible pride that lay behind it and how, quite honestly, that stank in his nostrils. It was deeply offensive to him. And I wept before him for nearly an hour, just sobbing in confession to him. One of the best things that ever happened to me. And we need to be willing to weep before God for our sins. So confession had taken place, but there was still a need for the evil to be cleansed from the people of God. And so Achan and his family, along with all their animals and possessions and all the stolen items, were taken to the valley of Achor. And the people were stoned and their bodies burned. Again, we find that difficult. The whole family suffered. Remember, our worldview here in the West is very individualistic. It's a much more corporate worldview there in Bible times, and that's God's worldview. And so the whole family did suffer for the sins of the man who led the family. Although, incidentally, on the other hand, notice that it was only Rahab who took in the spies, only Rahab who believed the promise of God, and yet her whole family were spared. We say, perhaps, it's unfair that Achan and his family were stoned. Equally, it's unfair that Rahab's family were saved. Sometimes we have to leave these things with God and say we don't understand. God is greater than we are. And perhaps our standards of fairness are not quite in line with God's standards of righteousness. But there we have it. The evil was cleansed from the camp. And we are cleansed through the blood of Jesus. Thank God we do not have to suffer judgment and death and hell because Jesus has suffered in our place. The blood of Jesus God's Son goes on cleansing us from all sin. There are some other things, but I'd like to pause here and read from chapter 8. Uh, and uh, these are all the positives about how defeat can be turned to victory. So, chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. 
For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land. You shall do to Ai and its kings as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. Set an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night with these orders. Listen carefully. You are to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go very far from it. All of you be on the alert. I and all those with me will advance on the city and when the men come out against us as they did before, we will flee before them. They will pursue us until we have lured them away from the city. For they will say, they're running away from us as they did before. So when we flee from them, you are to rise up from ambush and take the city. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. When you have taken the city, set it on fire. Do what the Lord has commanded. See to it. You have my orders. And verse 18, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out toward Ai the javelin that is in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver the city. So Joshua held out his javelin toward Ai. As soon as he did this, the men in the ambush rose quickly from their position and rushed forward. They entered the city and captured it and quickly set it on fire. So then, there are some more ways that we turn defeat into victory. The first thing is to take heart. Right at the beginning of that chapter, God says to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Have you learned that discouragement is one of the enemy's common weapons? And especially when we failed and sinned in some way. Even though we confess it, he still tries to tell us things like this. You're a miserable sinner. You failed once, so you'll fail again. How could you possibly think that God would want to use you again? You might as well give up now. Ever heard anything like that? One person has. Good. <laughs> we must not let gloom and despair take over. In fact, sometimes it's good to speak to discouragement and to say out loud, discouragement, go from me in the name of Jesus. Let's remember that God delights to use weak people. Let's remember that we are clay pots. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. My power is made perfect in weakness, God says. And we need to remember that God is for us and not against us. We need to remember he's the God of the second chance. God said to Jonah, go east and preach. And because Jonah knew how uh, cruel and evil the Ninevites were, he disobeyed and he went west. And we all know the story about the great fish and so on. But then, halfway through the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 1, comes one of the most wonderful verses, I think, in the Old Testament. Then the Lord said to Jonah a second time, go and preach. Isn't that wonderful? Or we think of Peter, whose denial we mentioned a few minutes ago, and yet he's recommissioned by Jesus, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Take heart, and that in chapter 7 and verse 10, 
the Lord says to Joshua as he's prostrate before the ark, stand up. And that's what he says to you when you're bowed down with failure. Stand up, carry on, I've not finished with you yet. Next, this whole thing about unity, unite. We talked about that in the first session, how the three tribes on, with territory on the east of the river were to go over and fight with the nine tribes to take the uh, land the west of the river. The first time that they attacked Ai, as we saw, they only took 3,000 troops. But now, chapter 8, verse 1, God says to Joshua, take the whole army with you. The whole people of God are to unite against the enemy. And let me say again, unity within the local congregation is so important. Paul warns in Philippians 2 and elsewhere against selfish ambition. People pushing for their own way. We've talked about the root of bitterness when people fall out and refuse to forgive and to be reconciled. If there is fighting of one another within the local body of Christ, how on earth can we unite and fight the enemy effectively? And talking of Philippians, there's a lovely picture there, a word picture at the end of chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And the picture behind that is the Roman soldier with his large rectangular shield. Those shields were made in such a way that they could lock together. And therefore, a row of soldiers could stand in line, lock their shields together, and it was like an impregnable wall. And as that wall of shields advanced, there was nothing the enemy could do. God wants us not to lock our horns in conflict with one another within the church, but to lock our shields together and come unitedly against the enemy. Where brethren dwell together in unity, there the Lord commands the blessing. Psalm 133. Next, listen. I think I pointed out earlier how easy it would have been to think, well, we'll just march around AI seven times and so on and so on. But no, that was not God's strategy on this occasion. God says, I want you to set an ambush away from the city where you can't be seen. The rest of you come and fight but retreat as if you're being beaten. And as you run further away, you'll draw the army further away from the city. Then those in the ambush can come out and take the city easily. Again, we see the importance of asking God to show us how to fight our spiritual battles. Next, obey. The Israelites did obey God's instructions at every point. The men of Ai fell into the trap. They were lured right away from the city and it was captured and destroyed. But notice how Joshua ends his instructions because I think there's an important point here. Chapter 8 and verse uh, 8. Sorry. Um, 
I've lost this one for the moment. Sorry. Um, anyhow, uh, he speaks about what the Lord has commanded, and then he says, See to it, you have my orders. That's interesting, isn't it? God commands, and Joshua gives the orders. The strategy, the will, is God's, but it's mediated through a human being. And that's how it ought to be in the life of the local church, that it's God's will that we're seeking, but it's mediated through the leadership, and ideally that leadership is plural. So if you are in a position of leadership in your local church, you are in a position of great responsibility. You, together with the other leaders, need to be waiting on the Lord and listening for him and saying, Lord, what are your orders? So that like Joshua, what you hand on to the people are God's orders and not your own ideas or your own wishes. Oh, there it is. Somewhere there in those verses, I I lost it for the moment. But that's the important thing, that we as leaders are not leading in the way that we want it to go, but we're seeking God so that the local church will be led in the way that he wants it to go. And Hebrews 13, on the one hand, says, obey your leaders and submit to them, be fully persuaded by them. And on the other hand, it says, for they are men who will have to give an account. And that's a very serious thing to think that we as local church leaders will have to give account of our leadership to God. And lastly, trust. That's, again, pretty obvious. Uh, We have to trust that what he tells us will work, even if it seems foolish humanly like marching around Jericho, even if it costs us something. And that's why he gives us these promises to encourage us. Verse 1, I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. Again, a prophetic purpose. Consider it done. (laughs) And also, another interesting thing here is the way that he tells Joshua to signal that it's time for the group of ambushers to come and take the city. He says, hold your javelin high in the air. And surely that would be a reminder of the time when Moses held his rod over the waters of the Red Sea and they divided. And so the people would be reminded of God's faithfulness in the past in taking their forebears through the Red Sea. And that would strengthen their trust now. Again, an important principle for us, when God has given us victories in the past, call them to mind, give thanks for those victories, because that will help to strengthen your faith in the present. Our past experiences of God's faithfulness encourage us to obey now so those two chapters speak of failure but they teach us that failure in the Christian life need never be final the ultimate outcome was victory AI was taken 
The ultimate story in the life of Jonah was that he went to Nineveh, having been given his second chance, and he preached and they repented. The last part of the story of Peter was that he became the leader in the early church despite having denied Jesus. So thank God that he is a God of the second chance and that with him failure need never be final. Let us pray. Father, we praise you that when we confess our sins, you delight to show mercy. You delight to forgive us and wash us clean through the blood of Jesus. You delight to say to us, stand up. You delight to say to us a second time, go and do whatever it is. May we rejoice in the riches of your mercy and in your abundant grace and not allow the enemy to discourage us and push us into defeat. May we go forward with you, not allowing any failures in the past to dog our feet. In Jesus' name, amen. And here she is.